In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star they had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This is the word of the Lord. I've told you that Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, is never mentioned in the 39 scrolls of the Hebrew Scriptures. But the word Bethlehem certainly is mentioned. It appears right there in the first book of Genesis. We are told that Jacob ran from his brother's anger 400 miles to the north. He spent 20 years there with his uncle, marrying two of his cousins, and with the two of them and two handmaids fathering 12 sons. The last to be born was second born to his favored wife, Rachel. She gave birth to Joseph and then gave birth to Benjamin. She died giving birth to Benjamin and was buried at a little nowhere place called Bethlehem, the house of bread. When Joshua was able to lead the children of Israel across the Jordan into the promised land, this little town was still a little bitty town. 200 years later, when they decided they needed to have a king like all the other tribes around them, they first anointed Saul. When Saul proved to be a very poor king, God told Samuel to go to this little place called Bethlehem where he would meet a man named Jesse. And from Jesse's sons, he would choose the one who was to be next king of all Judah. And that one was David, of course. So Jesus was born, according to Matthew and Luke, in the town of David, Bethlehem. Just five miles north of there, later King David would build the new capital city, Jerusalem. And Bethlehem remained a little village five miles outside the city all these centuries. Four things I've underlined here. Number one, this is a story about magi. We do not know exactly who they were. The word comes from Persia, the ancient Persian empire. They call magi those priests who seem to have an unusual ability to interpret dreams. But this is also a story about people who observed the stars. Now, they didn't know enough to be called astronomers. They were astrologers, but had certainly studied the heavens for a long time. And that practice fell more likely to Babylonians. 
The fact that they carried with them gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, three things that normally came out of Saudi Arabia, modern-day Saudi Arabia, have caused many to think these three or more or less. Matthew doesn't really tell us how many. We've called them three because there were three gifts, but we do not know exactly. The first thing in the story that I want to mention is that these men acted on whatever knowledge they had. We have seen the star rising in the east, and we have come. Every week I pray that you will come. I never take you for granted. Every new year that begins, I pray you will come and that others will come and join us. I really want to tell this story to as many as I can. We as teachers in our Sunday school and all of our biblical groups, all of our musicians, all of our clergy, we're all trying to tell God's story as effectively as we know how. And we believe if people will come, perhaps the Holy Spirit will convince them, as he did us, that it's true. Rick Hamlin lives in New York City. He's a writer. He's known all of his adult life that he has bad genetics when it comes to cardiovascular system. So he's watched his diet as carefully as he's known how. He's been an avid jogger all of these years. But the first week in December, at age 54, he had to have heart surgery. His goal was to get to church on Christmas Eve. Three weeks after surgery, I need to be in church on Christmas Eve, he thought. Surely enough, on Christmas Eve night, his family thought, okay, he was well enough, and so they all went to church. He didn't sit where he normally sat. He was normally in the choir. This time, he was sitting out in one of the pews. As the choir processed in, he saw all these friends of his whom he loved, with whom he would love to be singing. But as the service began, he discovered that he could not possibly have sung. First of all, he probably shouldn't have been climbing that many steps up into the choir loft. Second of all, he discovered he couldn't sustain his breath. He would sing two or three words, and then he'd have to stop and sort of gasp for breath. And he said, I got discouraged all of a sudden. What if I can never climb those steps again? What if I can never sustain my breath well enough to sing in the choir? And then I started paying more attention to the words of the hymn we were singing, he said. Christina Rossetti wrote these words, 1872 in England. In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan. Earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone. Snow had fallen, snow on snow, snow on snow, in the bleak midwinter long ago. Our God, heaven cannot hold him, nor earth sustain. Heaven and earth shall flee away when he comes to reign. In the bleak midwinter a stable place sufficed, the Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ. Angels and archangels may have gathered there, cherubim and seraphim thronged the air, but his mother only in her maiden bliss worshipped the beloved with a kiss. What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what can I give him? I give. 
Number two, this is a story about King Herod. Herod was not a nice person. He was cruel, dictatorial. The Romans had decided he was the one to rule over Judea, and he did that for 40 years. He lived 69 years. He died in the year 4 before the Common Era. He was a great builder. We know about Caesarea Maritima, right over on the coast. Ancient Judea had no natural ports. Joppa was fairly good. Up north, modern-day Haifa, a little bit better. But all along that coastline, really no natural ports. And he spent what would today be millions of dollars making Caesarea, named for the Caesar, of course, into Caesarea Maritima, Maritime, a port. It was later destroyed by a massive earthquake. But they have drawings that artists have put together of that magnificent port. He restored the temple that stood atop the Temple Mount. When it was first rebuilt after the Babylonians had destroyed it, the people who rebuilt it simply didn't have the gold and silver and bronze that Solomon had had accessible to him. They did the best they could. But Herod had the money, and he restored the temple to the brilliance of the days of Solomon. He built a number of fortresses, including Masada, Machaerus, and Herodium. But he was not a son of David. He was not even a Jew. The Bible said he was an Edomian. That's a, a Latin form of the word for Edom, the old tribe of Edom. Some scholars believe that the Edomites were descendants of Esau. Esau was certainly a brother of Jacob, but already 1,800 years had passed, and the Edomites living down in the desert were often enemies of the Jews, not their friends. Herod was one of them. So naturally, he was concerned. He was frightened. The word here in Greek is something trembling and shaking. His world suddenly was one as if in an earthquake of some sort. He had to find this child and do away with him as soon as possible. In New York City right now, there is a film festival honoring a great French director, not known to me, perhaps not to you either. His name, Robert Besson. He died just a few years ago. Mr. Besson was born in 1901. He was almost 40 when the Nazis came to his beloved France. He was a devout Roman Catholic. He joined the underground to do what he could to oppose their enemies. Uh, his particular cell was, were found out, and he was thrown into a prisoner of war camp where he spent many months until the war ended in 1945. Then he began producing movies again. But in a long lifetime, he made only 14. And those 14 have now been gathered and brought to New York City so that others may know the works of this man. The thing that caught my attention was that the reviewer said, here is a man who made movies about sin and redemption. Oh, those are our words. We love those words. Sin to describe where we are and redemption describing where we can be if we turn, if we come to him who is truly life. One of the movies is about a man who's in a prisoner of war camp. It's autobiographical, of course. It's about how he wakes up in the morning thinking of ways he can escape, goes to sleep at night thinking of ways that he can escape. 
to get back to the beloved country that means so much to him and to family who mean everything to him. This reviewer said that in movie after movie, he found a way to put little parts of the Latin mass into the movie because his Catholic faith, Christian Roman Catholic faith, meant so much to him. In another movie, he portrays Guinevere and Lancelot, the old boisterous Lancelot to whom Guinevere says, but God is not a trophy that you can capture and take home. But Mr. Besson summed up what he was trying to do in one of his journals when he said, things that are really important I hide in my movies, and the most important thing I hide the most diligently not too hard for those who are really searching to find. Would Herod search? Yes, for the baby, for a new way of life, not a chance. Number three, the Magi were told by Herod, go and find this baby, come and tell me, I want to worship him too. He was lying, of course, at that point. Nonetheless, they went searching, and when they found him, they were filled with joy filled with joy. That's what's written here for us in the words of Matthew. Pam Kidd is the wife of a retired Presbyterian minister. She's been writing devotional materials for many years, but the last few years has been writing about this coming retirement of her husband and what would they do after pastoring one Presbyterian church for so many years. In fact, when he retired, they decided they would like to do some short-term mission trips for the Presbyterian denomination, and those, those travels finally took them to Zimbabwe. They really couldn't imagine what Zimbabwe was going to look like. They had been told that almost one out of every three adults in Zimbabwe have died because of the AIDS epidemic. So you can imagine how many little children are running around without a mother and a father, without proper clothing, without proper food. She said, they, they stole our hearts. These beautiful faces, these wonderful big eyes sparkling when something good came to them. We discovered that it was sort of hard to track them down sometimes in the daytime. They sometimes were scurrying around trying to avoid the police who sometimes abused them trying to find something to eat, but at night you could find them. They were sleeping in the alleys wherever they could find a place. And so we decided that was a really good time to distribute blankets, to take food. My daughter married, Pam writes. She and her husband had gone with us on one of those trips, and she had met a young couple with a baby just a few weeks old. She knew they were living on the street and that night as our driver took us up one alley, down another, as we distributed blanks, blankets and food, we could not find this couple that she had met earlier in the day. She was really concerned. After the sun had gone down, it was getting really cold. She could tell by looking at that couple earlier in the day, they had very few resources. And she kept saying, we, we, we have to find them. We have to find them. And our driver went up one street, down another, and finally said, I've got one more place, one more. And as he drove into the alley, the headlights picked them up. A young mother and a young father bedding down on a piece of cardboard in an alley with their baby. And Pam writes, 
our daughter jumped out of the back seat of the car. This wonderful, soft new blanket ran to that couple and started swaddling their baby. I tell you, it's the way the couple must have been so many years before in Bethlehem. It was beautiful. It was wonderful. Number four, they offered gifts. Now, Matthew knows, of course, what happened to Jesus. And so these three gifts could be symbolic to him. But gold, ah, that was for a king. And just a few weeks ago, we celebrated Christ the King Sunday. We know that frankincense was for a god. And some Christian bodies still use lots of frankincense. The little pots that go to drive back evil and prepare the way of the Lord. And myrrh was often used for burial to anoint bodies of those who had died. When you wanted to do something really special, the last thing you could do, our Lord Jesus was crucified, but we acknowledge him as Lord and King, as the very embodiment of Israel's God. Rock Kid is written that it was just before Christmas. His wife was really busy, had a long list, and he said, okay, why don't I take our first grader, Harrison, and go down to the mall and take one of those families off the angel tree. That might be good for Harrison. So he said he drove him to the mall, and they found the big Christmas tree, and there were all the little descriptions hanging off the limbs. He said, we took one down, and I was helping him read any words that he didn't know. No name, simply a description. The father of this family is in prison. The mother is working three part-time jobs to try to feed her two small children. She has a little boy who's seven. Brock said, I stopped and said, like you, Harrison. And a little girl who's four said, like cousin Abby, Harrison. He nodded. Hey, I think this is a good one for us. Now let's think, Harrison. If you were some child, seven years old, a little boy who didn't have very much to play with and very few clothes to wear, what would you like most? Well, he had several ideas, and he started running ahead. I grabbed a shopping buggy and started right along behind him. After we'd put several things in, I said, now let's think about Abby. If she had very few toys and not enough clothes, what do you think Abby might like? This four-year-old would probably like something similar. Oh, he had some ideas, and he started charging off again. I right behind him with the shopping cart. And when we'd put several things in, I said, now let's think about the mother. She must be trying really hard if she's working three part-time jobs and keeping up with a seven-year-old and a four-year-old. What do you think she might like to have this Christmas if she has very little? He had some ideas, and he started running off again. I was right behind him. When we got to the checkout stand, and I was handing one item after another over the counter, I looked into his face, and he said, Dad, Jesus was right. It's better to give. 